All right, everybody. Uh, I'm Chris Gonzalez. This is Kevin Platt. We pastor Missio Day Communities uh, in Tempe and Mesa. And uh, want to come off of what Tyler had just said. So coming off of his talk on change and how we change, and want to draw some more drawings. So he asked you to draw a drawing. He drew some drawings. We're going to draw a bunch more drawings. So hopefully you have a pen, some paper. Uh, but Tyler really teed up some of the stuff we want to talk on. So a couple things. One, um, right towards the end of his talk, before the first question was asked, he said something about we need community to do this. Like we need community to change. And I was sitting in the back and I noticed when he said that, and he talked about we need community where we can love each other and speak these hard things to each other. And everybody's, I, like, there were, everybody's kind of head shot up, and then there was a lot of nodding. And even just now, as I said that, that we need community, a lot of heads started nodding. I think more and more that's something that we realize we need, and less and less we feel like we have. These kinds of relationships where we really can't talk about the difficult things of life and really can't see the gospel come to bear on the ins and outs, the everyday stuff of our life. And so that, that's one way that Tyler set us up. And it's, uh, it, it's really unique and interesting, right? So you get these beautiful, big, bold truths about uh, God and how we're brought in and invited into the triune God's relationship, right? We, we get the invitation to be able to be in Christ and a massive Christology and we get these uh, beautiful pictures all throughout scripture woven in and even as Tyler's talking did you feel your heart worshiping a little bit being like yes that is true and then you go home and your spouse is there (laughs) right like it's that picture of a marriage but then you go home and you've got your marriage and it's not perfect, and it's rough, and they didn't do the dishes like they said they would. And wives whose husbands are nice enough to be at home, and the kids are already in bed, and somehow the house is still a mess, and you find a little anger welling up inside of you. Or maybe you've got a boss who seems too overbearing and always pressing in, and you get angry and anxious every time you go into work. Or maybe you have kids, and you wish that maybe someone else would adopt the kids. And they can cry out to them, Abba, Father. Uh, you never thought that. No, we have these, these things. And if you're, if you're like uh, a normal person, which most of us are, most of us, we've got a good crowd here at Surge, um, most of us are normal. What happened is we will quickly start to talk about these things to other people. It might be uh, not so randomly on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, or it might be personally alongside someone else. And so what we want to talk about tonight are, are what are some ways that we don't just listen to things that people say, but how do we speak gospel truth back into those situations? So when somebody asks you, when somebody says to you, like you sit down, it's like, yeah, my, man, my wife is just driving me nuts, or I'm really anxious about this, or um, my boss, or the kids, or whatever it is. Okay, so let, let, us give you, let me give you three different uh, responses and be honest, neither of these, none of these are the right one, but be honest, which one of these do you most fall, likely fall into, okay? So the first one is commiserate. Yeah, man, I know. It sucks, man. I know. Me too. That's, that's, that's man, it's rough. Okay, so commiserate. Number two, spiritualize. Some of you commiserate, some of you spiritualize. I know, man, that's tough. You just gotta, you gotta let go and let God. What do you got? You know, you know, all things work together for good, so just, just hang in there. You'll get through it. Yeah. Um, Jesus, take the wheel, you know. 
I'm, I'm, it's late. All right, so commiserate, spiritualize, and what's the third one? I don't know. Or, or we just punt. And then, so here's what I mean by that for uh, the non-sports fan. Uh, this is the moment where in the conversation something gets brought up, and you're like, that's too hard, too heavy, too awkward. I know I should be saying something about this. And so you just change the topic completely. And so they say, man, I'm really struggling in my marriage. And you say, I had pizza for dinner. What do you think about that? <laughs> okay, so take, I'm going to give you about a minute. I need you to turn to one or two people around you. And which one of those are you most likely to do? Commiserate, spiritualize, or punt? And maybe give, if you're up for it, if you dare, give an example of, here's how I probably do that. Here's what I'd say to spiritualize it. Here's, here's an example of when I commiserate, okay? So uh, commiserate, spiritualize, punt. You got one minute. Ready? Go. Confess your sin one to another. All right, all right, all right. Go ahead and bring it back. So we're going to, we just did what is more often called private uh, confession. In a a small group, you just confess your sin, and and we're really upping the ante here, and so we're going to have you do some public confession next. Um, How many of you, go ahead and put your hand up and say, I'm a commiserator. That's what I do. That's me. Whoa. Can we just stop that? All right. All right. How many of you say, say I, I tend to spiritualize? Before I know it, something just comes out of my mouth that I heard before, and it, it's out there. Thank you for being honest. Just trust Jesus. You'll get better. <laughs> <laughs> and then how many of you find that you can't stand in the awkward tension, and, and you just tend to punt and just try to avoid the situation altogether? Uh, thank you. Uh, that there, There's some honesty in that, and as we do that, we realize that... Uh, there's a humor in it because we see it in all of ourselves, but there's a stark reality that that's not how we're created to operate as the church. And if we're not speaking the gospel to one another, where else will we hear it? Here's the, the big problem is that's not what Jesus did when Jesus came to address sin, and it's not what we see Paul doing either as he confronts sin. So in Galatians 2... Uh, Peter, we find, so Paul's writing it, but we find he's talking about Peter. And remember Peter, what had happened in the, gospel, in, in the book of Acts, uh, Peter, who was a Jewish person and knew not to associate with Gentiles and knew not to eat pork and shellfish. He knew that. And in the book of Acts, remember what comes down from heaven in this vision that he has? A sheet with all these kinds of food that he's not supposed to eat. And he says, no, 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 I'd never do that. I'd never do that. And Jesus tells him, eat it, eat it. You need to do this. And so what he has is he realizes what Jesus is saying is, no, something has happened in history that has changed all of history. And Peter, you can sit and have fellowship with these different people and you can eat this food because some things have changed because I died and I rose again. So that's what Peter learns in Acts. But then a little while later, Paul's writing in Galatians 2 and he's talking about how when he went and he met Peter... What was Peter doing? Peter would go and meet and eat with the Gentiles. But then when Jews from from somewhere else came and they came into town, Peter wouldn't talk to those people anymore. He wouldn't eat dinner with those people anymore. And Paul says something very interesting. He says, I saw that what Peter was doing was not in step with the gospel. It was not, or another translation, it was not in line with the gospel. And then what, what Paul says is, so I confronted Peter and all of them, I confronted them on this and I talked to him about it. So what happens in a very real life situation is Paul looks and sees Peter's life and sees, wow, what you're doing 
it's not in step or in line with the gospel. And so then he addresses it. He talks to him about it. What if we had the types of relationships where when we saw people who weren't living in line and step with the gospel, we actually had vocabulary, we had fluency, we had tools, we had the ability, we had the kinds of relationships where we could talk to each other about it. Well, that's what we want to get at tonight and give you some tools, give you some helps to be able to do that. But the first thing, we've got to jump back and just say, what is the gospel? What does that mean when he says you're not, he's not walking in step with the gospel? He's not in line with the gospel? Well, one way to put it, and you've seen this before, hopefully, is if this is the true story of the world, and this, by the way, if this is the first quarter of Surge, okay, there's the first quarter of Surge and six symbols, right? So creation, rebellion, the promise of the whole Old Testament that builds through the covenants, uh, the fourth act of redemption with culminating in the cross and the resurrection, Jesus then sending the Spirit and the church out to be his missionary people until one day when he comes back again. So if this is the good news, this is the story of which the culminating act is this, the good news of the cross. That Jesus came and he died on the cross, he rose again. If this is the good news of the gospel, what Peter and Paul are doing, Paul's saying, hey dude, Peter, you are living, this is where you're at in the story. This is the true story of the world and this is where you're at. And what you're doing by not eating with these people, it's not in step with this story. You're living some other story over here. And so what he's saying, this is trying to bring uh, quarter, let me try to frame quarter two with quarter one, okay? So you just went through quarter one, which is saying this is the true story of the world. Now quarter two is trying to say, how do we change? How do we walk in step with the gospel and live in this biblical story? And so that's what we're trying to do in this, is trying to uh, help each other walk in step with the gospel. So just as we get rolling into that process, uh, three things that are absolutely essential to this process. It's not a three-step process. It's not like one part this, one part this, one part this, and all of a sudden you know how to speak the gospel. But three things, and if you're tracking notes, uh, go ahead and write them down, that are absolutely essential to the process of gospel change and being able to speak the gospel to each other. The first is the Holy Spirit. The first is the Holy Spirit. Francis Chan was right to call the Holy Spirit the forgotten God. Many times we exist as if he's the weird uncle uh, of the Trinity. The one that we don't really talk much about, but we know he's there because he kind of creeps us out a little bit. And nothing could be further from the truth when it comes to the third member of the Trinity. Uh, just tracking it through the true story real quick. Uh, the Holy Spirit is present at creation. We see him throughout the Old Testament empowering people for ministry. We see it in David's life. We see it in Samson's life. Whenever people come up against something and they can't accomplish it in and of themselves, God's power through his spirit enables them to do the work that they were called to do. No small thing. He's the source of Jesus' power for obedience and mission. You can't stumble your way through Luke without realizing the Holy Spirit is the one Jesus looks to for strength to do his miracles, to remain faithful. And he regularly seeks him in prayer. He's promised to the believers in John 14 through 17. We don't have time to go through it all, but, but look there. He's sent in John 20. As you read Acts, the continuation of the story of Jesus and his spirit through the work of the apostles. He's their source of power. He's the one leading the mission. He's the one enabling them to speak with boldness and confidence, giving wisdom. 
You want to experience the love of the Father, Paul writes in Romans, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's Romans 5.5. You want to experience that love that Tyler was talking about. Paul would say that has been given to us through the Holy Spirit. Trying to change in the Christian life without the Holy Spirit is much like trying to to run a car without gas. You seem to have everything in place. It all looks right. It might even be shiny and new. And you're like, I can do this. You put your foot on the pedal, though, and there's nothing empowering it to go forward. You don't get anywhere without the Holy Spirit's presence and his empowerment to actually change. And so we, as the church, rely on the Holy Spirit. The second thing that's absolutely essential is community. It's community. It's the church. Some of us have the idea that the church is uh, uh, God saves individuals and then calls them into a rather uh, option, optional agreement with some other people loosely in their same city or same area or online, depending what you want to do. And, and that's called a church, and that's what we do as followers of Jesus. We can just maybe be a part of a church. The image that we have in Scripture, though, is that God saves a church who is comprised of individuals and the purpose of that church, you don't have an optional incorporation into that. And the purpose of that is that those people are how God not only works out into the world, but how he works in us as individuals. We need that community, and that community needs us. We see that throughout the text of Scripture. And the third thing that, that we've found is we've led a church, and we've led them in different contexts and, and talked through with people, is that we need a common language. It's really, really difficult to talk to someone if you don't have a common language. And so what, what do you speak the gospel with? How do we talk through gospel things? And that's what we're going to do for the rest of the time together is just give a, a few tools to be able to take these grand truths that we know about God and speak them into the everyday stuff of life. I was at a, a Paz de Cristo. It's a Catholic uh, organization in our city in Mesa. It's on a Broadway and Extension, and our missional community serves there. And so we were there, and I was doing the uh, noble task of a pastor parking cars as people came in for food boxes. I love it. Nobody expects anything of me, and I just get to point, and it's the best hour and a half of my day. Um, and so uh, a woman pulls up in the car, and so we go up to the window. We ask if they're there for a food box, and then give them instructions and smile at them because people like to avoid your eyes because they feel bad because they're there a lot of times. And so they're like, no, 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 like, welcome. You're allowed here. Like, you're part of this family. We love you, and we're glad you're here. And so let's do this. And so this lady rolls up, and I had my speech already, right? I, I walked up to the window, and the window goes down, and she looks at me. And I usually, uh, I do profile a little bit to see, is this going to be a harder conversation or an easier one? Namely, I speak un poquito Spanish and a whole lot of English. So if she speaks English, we're golden. And, and I went up to the window. She looked like she would speak English. And so, hey, how you doing? Glad you're here. Are you here for food? And she just stares at me. And then so I was like, all right, what's my next language of choice? Spanish, right? So, so I say, hola, and she just stares at me. And across the parking lot runs this woman uh, looking at, and she's running, she's like waving her arms, and I was like, okay, do you need help? And she's like, she can't hear you. She's deaf. And so all my articulate explanation of where the directions were, what to do, what ID to have, didn't matter for anything because we weren't speaking a common language because I didn't know how to communicate to her the information she needed to find what she needed to get to. And the same thing is true with the gospel, that, that we need to have these tools and be able to speak the same language to each other if we really want to be able to hear what the other people are saying and then speak in such a way 
that people are able to resonate with it and, and know where to go from there and not just using some kind of gibberish spiritual talk, some of those spiritualized answers that we gave if we want to move forward. So here we're going to give you three tools that we found to be really helpful with some different people, with people in our church as we're planning churches and planning missional communities. And so hopefully uh, some of these tools, maybe one, maybe two, maybe all of them, will be things that you could use. Either keep them in the back of your head or they can be things you can actually just write out. So I encourage you, we're going to write some stuff on the board, try to uh, jot it down. And especially if you're here with someone on your search table or someone, uh, a family member or something, uh, that you're in doing life with and community with, you could... Use us together as you come up against some different things. So the first one, uh, I have four questions that are super helpful to ask, all right? So the first one, they're going to go across the top. So the first one is, who is God? The second one is, what has God done? Third is, who are we? And fourth is... What would you guess? Good job. What do we do? So here's four questions. Who is God? What has God done? Who are we? And what do we do? Where we normally start, where we're, what uh, Martin Luther says is the default mode of the human heart, where we're defaulted to start, we normally start over here and go this way. So we start over here, with what I do, then defines and determines who I am, my identity. Now, how, which way does the gospel go? The exact opposite, right? And it doesn't even just start here. It just doesn't make up who am I out of nowhere. But it starts all the way back over here. It starts with, this is who God is. And because of who he is, this is how he acts. And this is what he's done most significantly in Christ, in the gospel events. So this is who, who is God, what's God done, and then that... This, what God's done, gives us a new identity. A common way to talk about it is our identity in Christ. And so we have a new identity in Christ. We're new creatures. We're new creations because of what he's done. And that all leads to and then feeds what we do. But the default mode, the way that we normally think about this is we start here and work back this way. But it's so important that we go that way. Uh, Let me tell you a story. It may be a little familiar. And so I'm going to tell you a story about a couple different individuals, and we'll try to work each of them through, see how they were working through this story, okay? So there's this, there's this dad. He's got two sons. Dad's pretty well off. And the younger son comes to his dad and says, Dad, you're as good as dead to me. Like, here's, here's what I want. Can you give me my half of the inheritance? Because I, I just want it now. And the dad, it's astounding. You would have never seen this coming. The dad goes and just generously gives him half of everything that he has. And the son takes it and he runs off to a faraway land. And he goes and he spends it all on wild, lavish living. And then he spends all the money and, and, and times get tough. He ends up uh, working in a pig farm. Now, if you know anything about the culture that the son comes from, pigs are the worst, most unclean animals. He's working in a pig's farm, and times get really tough. He's out of money, there's a famine, and he's eating the pods that the pigs eat. And he sits there, and he thinks to himself, my father's servants, my father's slaves have more than enough to eat, and here I am longing for the pods that the pigs eat. I know what I'll do. I'm going to pick myself up. I'm going to go back to my father's house. I'm going to go back to him, and I'm going to say, Father, if you'll just treat me like one of your servants, I'll come and work for you again. Would you at least let me do that? 
So he's going back. He's practicing his speech. And while he's still a long way off, his father sees him. His father picks his skirt up and he runs out after him. He runs out after him and he hugs him and he wraps him up and he kisses and he cries for him and and he gives him, he says, give him a ring for his finger, put a coat on him, put shoes on his feet, bring him in, kill the fattened calf for tonight we're having a party because my son who was lost is now found. My son who was dead is now alive. We're going to have a party. And so they bring him in, they usher him in, and that night the sun goes down and the, 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 the party's going, the music's going, the dancing's going. And remember, how many sons did the father have? He had two. And the older son comes in from the fields. And as he, as he walks in from the fields, he, he's madder than that. He's screaming. He comes in from the fields and he hears the singing, he hears the dancing, he sees the party, and he says to one of the slaves, one of the, one of the servants, he says, what's going on? And the servant says, your brother, your brother's come home, and your father's killed a fattened calf, he's given the ring, he's given the shoes, and, he, and he's having a party. And the son, the older son, he sits outside, he doesn't come in. And the father comes out after him. He says, my son, why, why won't, aren't you coming into the party? Won't you come join us? He says, the son says, you're throwing a party for him? All these years I've slaved for you. And not once have you even killed a goat for me and my friends to have a party. And yet this son who spent all your money on wild living, on, on prostitutes, on alcohol, on partying, on all this... And now you, you do all this for him? And the father says, looks him in the eyes, and he says, Son, all that I have is yours. But my son, who, your brother, who was lost, is now found, who was dead, is now alive. Won't you come into the party? Won't you come into my house? And the story ends right there. So there's two sons, the the older and the younger. Now if the father, so if this is a parable that Jesus tells in Luke 15, let's say the father represents God, okay? So let's ask this question. Let's first talk about the younger son. Uh, The younger son who goes off. Let's start over here. What was he doing? At the beginning of the story, throw some things out. So this is where we've got to get some participation. But what would you say? What would you fill in here for, for what was he doing? What did he do? What do you think? What's that? He demand. Yeah. What did he do? He's demanding. Specifically, he's demanding his inheritance. Now, this is good that this is a, a, a parable that Jesus tells. And it's from a long time ago. And so we would never be demanding people today. This isn't anything that would hit us in any sort of way. Okay? But he's, he's demanding. Okay? What else? What's that? He's thinking about himself, so he's selfish. Good. Again, selfish, not anything we struggle with. What else? What's that? 
Rejecting his family. Somebody else said something? Does this look more like a fruit of the Spirit or works of the flesh? So this is what he does. So we can pick, um, we can take any of these. So maybe uh, pick one of these in your mind right now. Just pick one of these. Maybe, you know, one that your friend struggles with. And think, okay, so if you take that one, what does that say about who he believed he was, okay? So someone who's demanding, let's say. So he was demanding from his father. Someone who's demanding, he demanded the inheritance. Who does he believe he is if he's the one that's demanding? What does that say about what he thinks his identity is? He's in charge, entitled. Good. All right, in the interest of time, let's just keep, let's go with these. So if he thinks that he's in charge, what does he believe that, what is his belief about what has God done? His father. What's, what does he believe his father's done or is doing or what does he believe about his, his father's actions if he believes that he's in charge? Owes him. Not giving him what he wants. Withheld. What else? His father's failing. Explain that. What do you mean by that? That's good. Ah, it's good. Okay. If you believe that, if you believe that the father, his father owes him, he believes that he's in charge, or he believe, he's demanding because he thinks he's in charge because he thinks his father owes him. So who is who is God? Who is his father in his in his mindset in his story? What's that? Who's his father? God? Yes, yes, yes. Yes. So who, what is he, um, so who does he think he is? Or uh, what's that? Yeah, so his, his father is like a servant. What else? What's that? ATM. What about if he, uh, he's failing? What has God done? He's failed him. Insufficient. Who is God? He is the all-insufficient one. Do you ever sing that song on Sunday or just us? Okay, here. It's funny because it's a parable that Jesus tells. It's a story, but if we come back over here and say, hey, sometimes we do some of these things, here's the big idea. All of our sin, the sin that we do, the things, this is the bad fruit, man, it all traces back to a lie about God. This, this is idolatry. Because is this the true God? Is this the God that you see in the Bible? Is this the God that's revealed in Jesus Christ? No. But at a functional level, at a functional level, and all, most if not everybody in here that's listening right now, You'd say you believe in the true God. You're followers of Jesus. You're Christians. You're regenerate. You're all these things. But at some level, we're unbelievers. At some functional level, when we see this, our sin reveals that at some level, man, we, we believe in a false God. And so the, 
what we want to do is be people to be able to, to acknowledge this, to say this, and to run it and to say, holy cow, this becomes so much deeper than, yeah, yeah, I was a little demanding and wanted some stuff. I was being selfish to go, oh, when I was being selfish, this is actually what I was thinking. I was thinking God's basically an ATM that's failing me. That's withholding stuff from me. And to be able to confess that to God, how much, how much deeper is that in confession and repentance? God, God, I'm sorry that I've been more selfish. I've been kind of... It goes even deeper. You say, God, I've trusted and believed falsely that you're an ATM who's withholding from me, even though I know Psalm 145 says that you open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. God, I, I confess that. I repent that. And then, so acknowledging this, acknowledging the idolatry behind it, but then not just staying there, how do we then go this way? So, Instead of these things, what do we know? How would you contradict this from what you know about Scripture? What is true about God? This one's a little, um, we won't do this one because it makes sense that in in that way, like the Father is his servant. In some ways, Jesus is the great servant. And so it might get a little confusing. But just if we go, God is the ATM, God is the all-insufficient one. What do we know to actually be true about God instead? Let's, instead of going this way, let's go back this way and see what we find. So, who is God instead of an ATM or insufficient? Who is God? He's a father. He's not an ATM. What's that? He's a father. What's that? He's a creator. Okay, so if he's a father, God is a, is a loving heavenly father. And that's exactly what he gets at in the story. And, and that's actually in the story, what does he realize when he's sitting there eating the pig's pods? All of a sudden he realizes, my father, why am I doing this sitting here when my father? So he realizes his father. And then what has God done? As a father, what has God the father done for us? So come out of the story for a second and just go with in the in the biblical story. So what is as father, what has he done for us in the gospel? What's that? The father provides. Good. What's that? He's redeemed us. What else? He's loved us. Died for us. He's a He's adopted us. Heirs. He's made us his heirs. Whoa. Okay, so just the Father, he's done all these things. If this is true, then what does that mean is true about us? If he's provided for us, redeemed us, loved us, died for us, adopted us, we're his heirs. Tell me some things. What does that mean is true about who we are? Who are we? We're blessed. Forgiven. child what's that masterpieces who am I not in charge now we need to stop there for a second just in this process. If you're working through this with someone, so here, here's how this ends up going. We're working through this with someone. Like, so you're talking with someone there, and it's like, man, so I had this recently. Someone just said, like, I'm just realizing how selfish I am. 
And my, my flinch is to commiserate. I know, I find that in myself too. And that, that's okay. That's good to identify and to empathize with someone and to, to build relationship. But does it just stay there? But what if to go back and, and help them say, hey, here's what you're actually believing. But then to come back this way. And, and when we're doing this with somebody, man, just to stop there for a second and say, look at what's true about God, what God's done, all this. Let's just sit there for a second. Let's worship. That this is the true and living God. This is what he's done. He's father. He's adopted us. We're his family. We're his heirs. That's who you are. Do you realize that? Man, let's just take a moment. Let's, let's pray and let's worship God for what he's done and who we are because of that. And then now let's, act, let's get to what do we do? How do we live? What does this mean? So if this is the case, if we're all these things, how do we then live? What do you think? Grateful. What else? We live lives of gratitude, humility, worship. So remember Tyler said earlier, he said, someone said replace. Going all the way back, said, what do you need to do if you want to lose weight? What do you want to do if you want to quit smoking? And someone said, you need, the first thing someone said, you need to replace it for something else. David Pallison says that with idolatry, the danger is, uh, it's like in the old restaurants, way back in the day, you'd have those cigarette vending machines. You remember those? Where you pull the little plug? And so Pallison has this illustration that idolatry is, it's kind of like this. If you walk in there and you're a cigarette smoker, you go and you put your dollar, at that time it's probably, you put a quarter in, and then you pull the plug for Marlboro Lights. And that thing just, and you pull it, and then the, the pack of cigarettes comes out. But what happens, you put your quarter in, and you pull that plug for Marlboro Lights, and nothing comes out. It's empty. It's out of Marlboro Lights. What do you do? Do you go, back, you go up to the hostess, and you say, hey, I'd like a refund. No, you don't, you don't do that. What do you do? You pull Camel Lights. You pull Marlboro Reds. You all, we always replace with something else. And that's the danger with idolatry. If all we do is just say, hey, I acknowledge I'm believing these false things about God, what we have to do, we're just going to replace the ATM with an insufficient God with some other idolatry. What you have to do is replace it with something else. And what I'd suggest, instead of replacing it with an idol, another idol, is to replace it with the true and living God, to replace it with Jesus. If you don't repent and replace with Jesus, nothing changes. And so that's where it's important. So that's what this process is doing. It's saying, hey, replace. So you end up replacing this. Like, hey, instead of being so de- selfish and demanding, hey, what, the, what if we, like, we do this? Because this is who God is, what he's done, and who we are. And so we get to live this way. And it's not even a, notice there's a difference between a have to and a get to. It's not, hey, you have to do this in order to be this. Get to is, hey, because of all that God's done, this is who you are, so we get to live this way. It's a blessing and a privilege as his children, as his loved ones. Can you imagine what it would be like to live in a community where you came in and saying, I'm feeling a bit selfish and this is what you get coming out of it? Does that look a little different than, oh, well, I guess, yeah, my family's kind of rough too. Or I had pizza for dinner. Or just, hey, trust Jesus a little bit more and it'll work out. This is so much richer the community that you get to experience that takes place now as somebody's uh, unveiled the dark places of their heart but not been met with condemnation but with love and grace and a better picture of who Jesus is and the God that we worship and how that meets us in the deepest, darkest parts of our lives but doesn't leave us there. 
That's a beautiful picture with that younger brother. And we see something profound taking place as these, uh, even in that story, if you track with it in the story, he goes from not just thinking these things, I I think my dad is good and I think he'd let me back in and so I'm going to go to him and I'm going to try and say, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you and so can I be a slave? But then he experiences the generous father who gives new life to him as his son. Do you think he had a different posture next time it came Then the dad asked, hey, who wants to take out the trash? And the younger brother's heart moved to worship, says, I am so glad I get to do that for you. How much is that the same for us as we serve a loving, generous, heavenly Father? And we experience these realities about Him. And then we say, we get to do this. We're forgetful people. I make the joke sometimes that I'll remember the gospel and then I'll go and I'll fall asleep and somewhere overnight it all leaks out of my brain because I wake up again forgetting it and need to be reminded again that this is all true fresh every day. Uh, you could go through the same exact thing with the older brother. And Let, we, go ahead. Let's do that. Let's, have, let's have them do it in groups. Great. So I'm going to leave this on the board and uh, I'm going to have you guys, if you write these four questions, this little quadrant up there and have turned to the groups uh, that you were in before confessing with and now you'll be able to process through things. Think of the older brother in this story now. The older brother in this story, uh, what did he do Who did he believe he was? Uh, What did he believe about what the father was doing to or for him? And then who was the father to him? For the older brother, he's the second one at the end of the story. So just go ahead and and fill out the top part. If you get down to it, feel free to start coming back. And what would you tell him if he came to you as the older brother saying, Yo, you're not going to believe what my dad did. How would you speak the gospel back to him? Hopefully you guys get there too. So we'll give you a few minutes, take uh, turn to each other, and start filling that out. All right, everybody. All right, we're going to see how, how we're doing so far. Uh, immediate feedback is really, really helpful. So um, when you look at the older brother, what were some of the things you saw him doing? What did you see him doing? Complaining, resenting, judging, comparing. He withdrew and he was jealous. Let me throw another word in there that's interesting. Uh, uh, He was obeying. Right? That, that's what he was doing. Let's go. You, you just made all the older brothers mad right there. If you identify, I mean, we were easy to see the younger brother and how he was jacked up, right? Because he went and spent his money with prostitutes in Vegas, gambling and all that stuff. Uh, and so we can see how that's wrong. But the, the older brother, he was obeying. But what made that fall in this category? Uh, let, let's go to the next question. Uh, who did he believe he was? The good son. Entitled. He was worthy. A faithful son. Unloved, yeah. How did that come out in the story? What did he say when his dad came out to him? I've been your slave. He felt like he was a slave. And then what did he believe about what his father had done then? He was unfair. Neglecting. He withheld. 
And then what did that say about who he believed his dad to be? Unjust. Abusive. An ATM? Did we hear that again? How did the older brother look at that? Whoever said that? Yeah. Okay. How did that come out with the older brother? I love that because it's going to flesh out this perfectly. I never realized this. How did he view him as an ATM? No, you're fine. The dad gave the younger son some of his stuff, and he was really angry about it because, wait, you took a withdrawal to my account. He just had a little longer-term investment plan, right? The, the son wanted the, the quick money easy. The older brother was building up the interest and said, hey, he's going to be worth a lot more one day, and all that should be mine. Uh, when you look at this, here, here's what's interesting. The older brother and the younger brother demonstrated many of the same beliefs about their father even if their behaviors didn't look exactly the same. And that's why it's so essential that we go beyond just the behaviors and look at the beliefs. Because even in his obedience, he wasn't doing it because he loved his father. He was doing it because he was a slave to his father and he was trying to play the long con on him to get his money and use him that way. And so he didn't love his father either. And so in the story, this is where the older brother gets left, right? We see in the younger brother, he has faith and repentance. He says, I can go back to my dad. He has a change of mind, which leads to a change of direction. And he walks back to his dad and is embraced. The older son, we never see if he repents in the story. We never see if he believes anything different about his father. And I think that's the the pressing part of the call. And for us, as we speak the gospel to one another, to know not everybody turns, but we echo after our father and our true and greater older brother, Jesus, right, who goes and rescues us and goes to the far off place to get us, that we invite others to please turn and believe this to be true. So what were some of the things, for those of you that got there, or maybe you didn't get there, uh, but it's coming to your mind now, what would you have told the older brother had you the chance to say, I know you believe this about your dad. You just walked him through all these things. This is where he's at. Now, what would you tell him about his dad? Your dad loves you. He's better than fair. You realize how even with Jesus' stories, they're not just out there again, like Tyler said, things nobody can relate to, right? These were stories that people relate to, very common in families, that there's a reality that there's a call even in that to repentance. And it's not just a theory, but a reality. So this is who God is. He's fair. He's graceful. He's truthful. He's just. Look at how he welcomed your brother in, even though he squandered everything. How much more does he love you? You'll be welcomed in. That love is for you. He's impartial. So what would you tell him his father does? He pursues what was that? He comforts. How does the father pursue the older brother in the story? Yeah, he pursues both sons, huh? Yeah. What else? One or two more. He explains. Yeah, he doesn't just expect you just to get it, but it takes time with both sons in their presence, explaining to them as they needed to, one through the gift, the other through words. He provides. He works so you don't have to. What was that? He gave them both what they wanted. What do you mean? 
Yeah. And then who would you want to tell the son, this is who you are because of all what's true about your father? What was that? He's blessed. Not forgotten. He's loved and cherished. Uh, I love that not forgotten. Just because we're celebrating one doesn't mean that I've forgotten you. Yeah. He's a son. <laughs> you are a son and not a slave. I'm sorry that you feel that way. That is not who you are to me. You are a son and you are loved and all these things true. And then how would you love for this story to end? With the son doing what? Throwing a party, joining the party, being able to celebrate the work that God was doing that his father was inviting him into? Yeah, hug his brother, hug his father, see the family come back together, right? To have his actions now as a recipient of his father's love that extends to those that he never thought it would to also extend to him and to be able to see that love experienced by all. The father loving his one son and welcoming in the other as well. This movement of love that flows through. And so that is, as we talk through the different ways that the gospel integrates and, and the implications work out in our lives, this is one tool that we found very, very helpful. Um, very few of us realize just how bad of unbelievers we can be until it's out there. But then the beauty is that even in that dark ugliness, the gospel still reaches, your God still pursues, your Father still loves you, and offers you a true and better life that is freedom and healing and reconciliation, and you're invited into that. And that's, that's the hope that we always want to bring to people as we're sharing and communicating the gospel to them. The gospel, as Tim Keller says, isn't just that you're more messed up than you ever thought possible, but it's because of Christ you're more loved and accepted than you ever dared to dream. Both sides of that are true. And so we can't forget either one. Great. Let's take uh, just a short, maybe a five-minute uh, or less break, maybe three minutes. So stand, stretch, say hello to some people. Uh, go to the, use the restroom if you need to, but just a short break, and we'll get back and finish out with just a couple more things. All right, everybody, find a seat, find a seat. All right, public confession part two. So if you were going to lie, not that you would, because I know nobody here is a liar, but if you were going to lie, hypothetically, why would you most likely lie? Here's four options up here, A, B, C, and D. Option A, to make my life a little easier. To make my life a little easier. Let me give you an example of how this would work out for me. Leslie, my wife, says, hey, I'm going out for an hour. Can you just take the, I know you're watching the game, but can you take the trash out? Sure. She goes out. Half hour later, she calls me and says, hey, how's everything going? Good. Watching the game. Hey, did you take the trash out? Oh, yeah. Now, why did I say yeah? I know I still got a half hour to do it. If I say no, what's going to happen? I ask you to do one thing. And it's just now now we're going to be in a fight. Now life's not going to be, do you see that? So maybe just a little white lie, not a big lie, but just a little white lie. And then I'd say, yes, I already did. Then I get up and go do it. Okay, to make my life a little easier. B, to control circumstances. Because if I can fudge a little bit on this or that, that number or that detail, or maybe hold back a detail, I'll be able to control some circumstance. Okay. C, to not admit I was wrong, to not admit I was wrong, and then D, to avoid hurting someone else, to avoid hurting someone else's feelings, to avoid someone else getting hurt. If I, if I lie a little bit over here, it's, gonna, it's a white lie, it's not going to hurt anybody, but it'll, it'll help this person out. 
So if you were going to lie, not that you would, why would you do it? Turn to your neighbors and tell them why. Tell them which one and maybe why would you do that one. Okay, let's try this again. So let's vote on our sin by hands. <laughs> Who would say A? I'd most likely do A. Thank you for joining me. Okay. Uh, who would say B? C and D. All right. What's that? And who would say all of the above? There you go. All right. Here's the, here's the reality. Though, this is what you've got to wrestle with. This, we're going to do two more. Uh, so one grid, and then Kevin's going to do a drawing. And here's, here's the big idea. I'm just going to give it to you up front. Is that there's one sin, right? It's lying. But you and the person next to you will lie for completely different reasons. And so if all we do is just say, hey, don't lie. Don't lie. You shouldn't lie. You shouldn't lie. We're not getting down to the motivational structure of the heart, and we're not going from, we're just staying over here on the lie, but we're not working it through, and we're not loving each other, and we're not working it through and saying, no, what is the lie I'm believing about God? And, and here, every, for every sin, every problem, emotion, or sinful behavior, work of the flesh, it's always behind it, it's always a lie we're believing about God. And it's always some other idol we're after. Uh, Tim Keller talks about, uh, he, he says in his, in his ministry, he's found that there's four common heart idols, he calls them. So idols that we trust, we believe that it's just a helpful taxonomy to boil everything down. And you can often find people flinching towards one of these. And, uh, and same, same with the cigarette vending machine. We'll pick off all of them and some of, you'll, you, we'll all say all of the above at different times. But there's different ones, and each of these questions kind of gets at one of these idols. And we found it to be really helpful to give this language, to, to just be fluent in saying, hey, these are these four idols. Which one is it that is making me do this? What's feeding that? Because then we can figure out, how do I replace that with Jesus? How is Jesus the true and greater of this? Okay? So for this first one, to make my life easier, this gets at the idol of comfort. Comfort. To control circumstances gets at the idol of control. Comfort, control. To admit, I, to admit I was wrong gets at the idol of success. And to avoid hurting someone else gets at the idol of approval. Every one of these four words I just put up there. Every one of these four idols, comfort, control, success, and approval. Listen, every one of them, each of them is a good thing. It's a good part of God's creation. Remember that article you read, probably the third week of first quarter of Surge and the reader, sin, not the way it's supposed to be. And he says that sin is basically like a parasite on God's good creation. And so what sin does is it goes at good parts of God's creation. In, 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 the, in creation, think back to that first act of Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, are Adam and Eve comfortable? Wow, how are they comfortable? And they live in the garden. That has, and God gives them everything they need to live the life the way it's supposed to be lived. Are, God, are Adam and Eve, do they have control? Well, surely God's in ultimate control, right? But they're given the right to have dominion and to subdue and to have control over everything in creation under God's ultimate control and authority. Are they successful? Do they have success? 
Yeah, they're supposed to be fruitful and multiply, be successful in raising a family. They're supposed to, their, their goal is that then they go and, and take the, from the garden in ever-increasing concentric circles, be successful in their job and their vocation that he's given them. And then do they have approval? And they have the approval of God. He says it is very good when he creates them. And they have the love and the approval of each other. There's no shame between them. But what happens with idolatry is it takes the good things of God's creation, it takes a good thing and makes it a God thing makes it an ultimate thing. And so these things become the things that we want beyond anything else. And so we'll lie to get them. We'll do all sorts of things to get them. And so if these are uh, false things about, uh, that we look to, we look to other things to be our comfort, our control, our success, and our approval, then how do we think of what is true about God? And this is where uh, we talk about the four G's. And so there's these four G's, these four characteristics or aspects of who God is. And so write this down. We'll put a grid up here. Not yet, in a little bit. Uh, We'll put a grid up that'll explain this a little more. So if you don't catch everything, it's okay. Um, But here, basically, the four G's go like this. So they, they, they combat each one of these four idols. So if these are idols, here's the four G's. The first one, for comfort. Listen to this. God is good. So you don't have to look elsewhere for your comfort and your satisfaction. God is good. I said earlier in Psalm 145, it says that he opens his hand, you open your hands and you satisfy the desires of every living thing. And his hands are abundance. His presence is abundance of joy. And so God is our provider and he provides everything we need for our comfort. And so God is good. Can we remember that? God is good. I don't have to look elsewhere. I don't have to look to something else. The next one, for control. God is great. God is great. He's sovereign from beginning to end. He knows He's the Alpha and the Omega. He knows the end from the beginning. He is sovereign in control of everything. And so when we think that we need to seek and wrap control from other people and other things and circumstances, we need to remember that, no, God is great. He's sovereign. He's in control. God is great, so I don't have to be control and manipulate people and circumstances. God is great, so I don't have to be in control. Isn't that freeing? Tim Chester, you're going to see this in uh, uh, You Can Change, the book you're about to start reading. In one of the chapters, he calls these, the seed of this, he calls these four liberating truths. Isn't that good? These are liberating truths, that God is good, God is great. The next one for success, uh, that God is gracious. God is gracious, so I don't have to prove myself. You saw that with both the sons. He's gracious. He's, he's, he's not making the son come back and prove his repentance. He's running out after him. He's standing on the porch looking for him, running out, and he freely just lavishes grace on his son and says, you're my son. And he goes to the older son and says, you're my son. Everything I have is yours. He's gracious. God is gracious, so you don't have to prove yourself. God is gracious, so you don't have to prove yourself. And then finally, God is glorious. God is glorious, so you don't have to fear others. And this idea of glorious is that uh, the Hebrew word, kavod, it gets at the weightiness of God. So it's this idea that God is, is weighty. He deserves honor. When they talk about uh, Supreme Court justices. A few years ago, uh, President Obama nominated Supreme Court justice, and I remember they said, that person doesn't have the gravitas to be on the Supreme Court. 
And by the, the gravitas, I mean, there's just not a weightiness behind their persona, behind uh, their track record and, and their resume. And, and it's getting at this idea that God is the most weighty. He has the most gravitas. And what the Proverbs say, the Proverbs contrast that with what it calls a fear of man. And so God is glorious. We fear him so we don't have to fear other people. And that's what ends up happening when we don't believe that God is glorious. So God is, so what are, let's say these together. Let's, let's see if we can do it. Just chant it all together. This will be our creed, okay? So uh, I, don't, I didn't write them down, so I don't know them. So you're going to have to start. So the first one, right, God is good. So we're going to say, like, we're all going to say together, God is good, so we don't have to be in, uh, so we don't have to look elsewhere, okay? Let's say, ready? God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. Good. What's the next one? God is great. So we don't have to be in control. No, say like you mean. I know I said it six different ways, and you're like, well, we all wrote something different. It's all right. The next one, God is gracious. God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. And the last one, God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. Okay. So if those are the four Gs, the fifth one, if you want a fifth one, is that God is gangsta. So... um, Okay, so those are four Gs. Now, this might be overwhelming. We'll see if this actually works. Uh, if you guys can go ahead and put the slide up. So this is a grid that we probably, in hindsight, should have planned it out. Yep. Can you see in the back any shot? Maybe? Good. Okay, so come to the surge lunch. First Wednesday of the lunch. Okay, so if we fail to believe... So over here on on the column over here on your left, if we fail to believe that God is good, so we'll go through this first one. If we fail to believe that God is good, look what happens. We end up seeking comfort. When we fail to believe God is good, we seek comfort or another way, pleasure, a lack of stress, entertainment. And then the price we're willing to pay is reduced productivity, fewer relationships. Why Why would that be so? Why, why would we be willing to pay the price of reduced productivity? Kevin, you struggle with this one. <laughs> why, uh, why, is that, why is that the case? That's cute. Um, because we would rather be comfortable than have more demands on us, right? And so when we don't want to keep taking on more and more demands, our productivity can go down, and we're not able to cultivate the pieces of God's creation that we were given to. And then fewer relationships, that part, because let's be honest, people can be a real hassle. And relationships can be complicated. And it can be frustrating and difficult. And so life is a lot easier with a lot fewer people in my life. And so it becomes more comfortable not to have people. And I'm willing to accept that, as awful as that sounds. Greatest nightmare becomes stress, demands, a to-do list. Others often, and this is interesting, because all this, it becomes, it's relational, Right? You guys can take pictures of this. We'll also, I'll have Danae send this, uh, we'll email this out uh, later tonight or tomorrow. Um, but greatest nightmare, or others often feel, there's, it's always relational. So it's never my personal sin. Like this is the thing I'm struggling with. There's always communal results to what we're struggling with, to our sin. So others often feel hurt, neglected, uninspired. And then I often feel boredom. Because the other, the counterfeit gods that you seek for your comfort... They don't ever satisfy. They always let you down. Uh, Chris Wright, uh, in the book you're going to read in the third quarter, he, I don't know if he says it in this book, but he's got this quote. He says, false gods never fail to fail. Isn't that good? False gods never fail to fail. They will fail you. 
You'll, feel, you'll end up feeling bored. Even though you're looking for something else to satisfy you, you end up getting bored. And then we can run it through with any of these different ones. We'll just, real quick, God is glorious. God is glorious, so I don't have to fear others, but I, we often seek acceptance, affirmation, praise, others' approval. The price we're willing to pay is emotional health. Wow. Emotional health because I'm constantly dependent on what? Other people's approval of me. How fickle is other people's approval of you? Never saying no. Man, you can never say no because if you do, you might let somebody down. Price, greatest nightmare is rejection. Others often feel smothered or frustrated. And then I often feel fear of men, cowardice, FOMO. What's FOMO? Fear of missing out. God is great. My, uh, <laughs> when I was using this first sermon, my 13-year-old daughter was in there, so I was trying to throw something out to make her feel included like she knew what was going on. So I tried to talk like a 13-year-old. God is great. Uh, so we see control. If we don't believe God's great, we see control, self-discipline, certainty, standards. The price we're willing to pay is loneliness. I'm willing to be very lonely, and I'm willing to never be spontaneous because I want control of everything. The greatest nightmare becomes uncertainty. Others often feel condemned, manipulated. Why would that be? Why would other people feel condemned or manipulated? Huh. Yeah. So some people use sar- you'll use sarcasm to control a, a situation. I don't know why you would say that to me. That really hurts my feelings. Uh, no, it's exactly what I use questions. So two things I use personally uh, to control circumstances. So for people in Missio, here it is. Ready? So two things I use. One is sarcasm, like you said. Another is ask questions. So if I ask enough questions of the other person, if I can sit down with you guys and just keep asking you questions, then whatever happens, you never ask me questions. I control the conversation. It's a great pastoral trick. Uh, and then I often feel worry, fear of the future, anger. And then finally, God is gracious. If we fail to believe that, we seek success, power, influence, God's approval. The price we're willing to pay is burdened. Greatest nightmare, humiliation, failure. Others often feel used. I often feel anger, pride, guilt. Remember about five, six years ago, we were working through this chart, and uh, Kevin and I were talking through it, and I was just trying to say, I wonder which one like, I primarily struggle with. I'm really trying to figure this out. And I, I both struggle with those idols of, I'm wondering, is it like approval and acceptance or is it success? And so I had this thought in my head. What if I, what if I, I preach a sermon on Sunday morning? I preach a sermon and, and anyone, if you've ever preached or done public speaking, sometimes you just know it's a bomb. And so I get there and I'm just uncomfortable. I'm tied to my notes. It's not quite coming out. Ah, it doesn't feel right. Ah, and I just kind of gut it out and get through and, uh, and say amen. And then I go hide in the back and then I go home and, and I go home and I just know it's not good. And my whole missional community, my family, like my missional community, they drop their lunch plans and they all come over to my house. And they say, hey, Chris, we're over here. We just want to, we know you didn't feel great about your sermon. And we know it wasn't your greatest sermon. It wasn't a very good sermon. But, hey, we want you to know. No, they're being, they're being real, for real. And they say, Chris, we, just, we wanted to come here. We want to pray for you. We want to tell you we love you. We brought you Rubio's. We love you. 
And we just want, we want you to know that we love you so much. We want you to know we, you have our approval. I would be so pissed. I would, I would, you came all the way over here to tell me that I, that I stunk today? You came all the way over here to rub it in my face? That, and right there I realized, yep, not approval, definitely success. <laughs> because I can't, even, I can't even receive their love. Do you see this? Now, the other, now, because of that success, others oft, what do others often feel? Used. Man, how does, whoa, how does that play out for a pastor? Man, people become not people in a congregation, people in my missional community. They become, man, tools to get the idol that I want. No, 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 no. They become tools to get the idol that I think I need. They're not people. They're something to be used. And that's, that's, that's the damning thing about these idols, is that they take the people that we're supposed to love, we can't receive love from them, and we can't love them. Because people become tools to get what we need. And so going all the way back to what Tyler talked about at the beginning, if we're called to love God and love people, and to become more and more love, love, loving people, then it's essential that we do battle with these idols. It's essential that we believe the truths about who God is. God is good. He's great. He's glorious. He's gracious. And because of that, that changes how I live. And so with that, Kevin, why don't you uh, draw some trees? The, uh, can you do your racing? Just to catch with us, I, we were, have done this, um, just the teaching a few times uh, over. And one of the dangerous things that we were... Uh, admonished on with it was as we talk about our sin right we got a few ways we do it one is to uh, realize how dark and how deep and how messed up and how broken we are and it feels really icky and nobody wants to talk about that very long and so we talk about idolatry and how it plays out and sometimes the way we do it can seem um, maybe too flippant or too funny and so we giggle but we laugh because we don't want to feel too awkward but I would just say this we were pressed on this to remember anytime we talk about idolatry that's not a, a cute little like teddy bear that we're clutching onto that we look to to maybe get through. And so it's like, oh, that's your comfort idol. Uh, but idolatry is more like a cancer that robs the worship of the true and living God and leads to the destruction of our lives. And that's why faith and repentance are called for, not because we have a cute little thing that we need to trade out for Jesus, but because we're clutching onto something that is looking to break us and lead us into bondage. And there is life and there is freedom and there is hope in the gospel. And that's what we want to be a part of speaking to one another because it doesn't look as funny when it's not just lying about the trash, but it's lying about where I was last night when I was with somebody that's not my wife. And so remembering that, that these actions as we talk to our friends, as we sit across the table from neighbors, as we're sitting with people in our church, in our communities, and around the surge table, we're talking to them, and we hear things coming out that are like, man, that's not right. Please don't just commiserate. Please don't just spiritualize or trivialize. And, and please don't just punt, but do the hard work of speaking the gospel into that. I'm going to say something that's going to sound a little weird, but uh, we've said a few of those things already. Um, 50% of speaking the gospel to one another, at least 50% of speaking the gospel to one another is asking the right question. 
It's asking the right question and allowing the person who you're talking to to respond and to be able to process. It's not me just telling you what I think for good advice. Remember, we've got good good news to share. We don't just have good advice. We have good news. But in order to share good news, we have to know what the bad news someone already believing. We have to know what they're already pressing into that isn't Jesus. And so if you're not the type that can follow a whole bunch of charts and graphs, here's a really simple picture that even I can draw. And I'll do it in under 10 minutes for you. And so say you're talking to someone. These are going to be trees, just I can't draw. Um, uh, But picture this as a tree. And our actions as fruit. Yep. Well, I was going to make a joke about my idolatry. I'm not going to. Um, So say it's lying. We'll take that again, right? Lying, as small or as large as it may be, uh, it's still an affront to the true and living holy God who has called us out of darkness into light, and we no longer have to be those people, but sometimes we are. And say you're talking to your friend, and you're like, man, I don't want you to lie anymore. I want you to do something like, Uh, that resembles good fruit, right? Jesus says, out of the overflow of our heart, our mouth speaks. So as we share what we're doing or what we're struggling or how we're living, that's always out of the overflow of what's already going on deeper. And so say, maybe I want you out of the overflow of your heart to not feel like you have to lie, but I want you to have some good fruit, right? Some speaking the truth in love to one another, no matter how awkward or how inconvenient or how tough or how time-consuming it may be. I want to be able to speak the truth in love. Sometimes our counsel or our, uh, when we see a lie, we say, hey, here's the deal. You're lying. Stop it and tell the truth. Right? Hey, uh, you're struggling with overeating. Stop it and don't eat as much. Hey, you're struggling with your language and what you say and it's just dishonoring to God. Stop it and use more God-glorifying language. What we've learned tonight is that falls so far short because all you're doing is looking for behavior modification and that will never, ever last for gospel change. We always have to go from the fruit and work down to the roots. The problems that reveal themselves in our behavior always are a direct result of our beliefs. And so in this, you can just ask somebody, how's it going or what are you doing? So what we are doing is the fruit. But where we see good fruit, that's coming from something deeper to be celebrated, not just the fruit itself. Where we see bad fruit, the works of the flesh, uh, that's coming from something deeper that's in the roots. And so asking the question, then not just what are you doing, and then trying to swap out behavior and, and put good fruit on a bad tree, which Jesus says is impossible, and he tends to get these things right. We go down deeper, right, and say, what are you believing? Specifically about God. What are you believing? So Chris comes to me, and we've been making a decision as a church family, and this is something we've talked through, um, and he's texted me and said it was all right to use it. So say he uh, is just feeling anxious about a decision we have to make for a church building. We're trying to figure out where we should be located, and he's feeling anxious about that. And so as a friend, as a brother, we're having this gospel conversation. The answer for him isn't to say, hey, did you know In Matthew 6, Jesus says, don't worry. Three times. Quit worrying, quit worrying, quit worrying. Have a great day, Chris. I haven't loved him well. I haven't served him well. Hey, Chris, you're feeling anxious. Why? Why is that? 
Where's that anxiety coming from? The four questions come in right here, right? Like, what are you believing about yourself? God might not be looking out for my best interest, right? This gets into the twisted parts of the root system. God might not be looking out for me. God might not know what's best. This might be out of his control. That's really interesting. What are you believing? Let me ask you this, Chris, then. Who do you, responsibility do you think it is to build the church then? And so, so what do you ultimately want? Who are you worshiping? What do you love the most? Man, myself, I think this all falls on me. It could be that same lie that we talked about, but it's always going to come out of a dark heart, right? This, this wrong belief is always a result of wrong worship. What we love informs what we believe the most, which informs what we do. And so the issue lies far beneath the soil, much as it does if you've ever done any gardening or you have a tree and the tree's not producing fruit. You don't go out and yell at the tree, bear more fruit. You don't go up and glue some fake plastic fruit and be like, look how pretty it looks. You go down and start doing some work in the soil and figure out what's going on in the roots. And these are the questions. What are you believing? Then what are you worshiping? Who or what are you worshiping? And this really gets to the heart of how we can speak the gospel because now we know the false savior. I'm worshiping my comfort. I'm worshiping my control. I'm worshiping my success. I'm worshiping, at the end of the day, me. One of two people is on the throne, Kevin or Jesus. And so now my friends help me navigate down there. Now what comes next in the process isn't the question. These are all questions. I'm just asking you. I'm sitting across from you. We're having coffee, and I'm asking questions to get from the fruit, Peel, like peeling the layers off of an onion. You know how each layer takes you further down. What are you doing? Okay, that's interesting. Now, what are you believing about God? All right, great. Now, who or what are you worshiping at the core of this? And now, for the first time, I can speak good news to somebody. And so this is when we speak good news. There's a time in our blessed rhythms, right? We listen well, but then we speak. And so in this drawing, I put that in the, let me just draw a big cross here. And so the Holy Spirit, hopefully working as we expose the idolatry in our heart, we can then apply the cross and the redemption that Jesus has accomplished. We can tell the story from creation to new creation. We can, in that place, proclaim the power of Jesus over the sin that is at the root of that behavior. That unbelief, we can say what's true about Jesus. We speak the hope of the gospel, and in that, pray that the Spirit of the living God produces fruit. And belief. And then in that, we see hearts starting to be changed. And the heart starting to well up as the Spirit affirms, this is what's true about Jesus. Jesus really does love you. You don't have to earn that acceptance. Jesus really is great. Jesus really is control. You know that moment when all of history looked like it was out of control on the cross? I mean, the earth is shaking. It's dark. The veil's uh, in the temple is splitting in half there's this crazy scene going on and god himself then the sun is hung on the cross everything seems out of control hey you don't need to be anxious in that moment god was as much in control as he was the moment when he spoke the world into existence man that's powerful for my anxiety isn't it reminding in here of the four g's is so rich is so rich and then it starts to produce a life of faithfulness that produces good fruit. But much of the work that is to be done in our own lives and in the lives of our community 
must be done under the soil. It's root work. And in that, we see fruit produced. And so what we did tonight was just give a ton of tools. And I know it was a lot of information. And some of this, you're going to be a little bit confused. Wait, what were they saying? And hopefully the reading in Chester's book does a, uh, a world of good in clarifying some of the confusion. Because you'll find almost all of this in that book. And so as you go through your change projects over the next semester, everybody's going to identify a change project. And then we're going to begin to do a lot of this process. What's the lie I'm believing? What does that reveal about what I believe about God? What does that reveal about who or what I worship? Man, how is this liberating truth good news? And then what does good fruit look like? This is the process you're going to be involved into. And I would just strongly encourage you, which is pastor speak for I would force you if I could. I would strongly encourage you to lean into the God who is holding you through the process. Trust him. Be a community that earns the trust and deserves the trust of one another as you together speak the gospel to one another. Uh, Tyler's illustration of Alan Iverson talking about how he's a superstar and doesn't need practice. I can tell you this. When it comes to speaking the gospel, uh, the superstar is the Holy Spirit. We all need practice. And so would you, with grace, listen to one another, speak to one another, and do the hard work of being a part of the process of change, not just so that we become better people. That's not the goal of this. But so that God is glorified and our city is beautified because there is a plethora of people who trust Jesus sent out into our cities to bear witness to the good news that is changing creation but also changing us. Let me go ahead and pray. And then Chris will send us out. Father, we are so grateful that you are a good father and not vindictive, not manipulative, not a taskmaster. You are not begrudging, but you are generous. You are faithful. You never leave us. You delight in us, our flaws and all. Jesus, I'm grateful that you didn't wait until we were better to die for us, but while we were still sinners, you died for us, and while we're still sinning, you love us. Spirit of the living God, the creative force, the compeller of change, we ask that you would work powerfully in our tables over the next quarter. Would you change our hearts? Would you expose sin, produce conviction that doesn't lead uh, to bitterness, but that leads to joyful repentance and faith? God, we are grateful benefactors of your amazing grace. Would we go out fooling feeling freed and loved and delighted in and liked by the God of the universe. And will we be your hands and your feet sent to demonstrate your love to a world that is longing for the same hope. And we'll thank you for that in your name, Jesus, and ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hey, today, are there any announcements we need to make? All right, we're good. Hey, one, just one thing. Give me one minute before you walk out the door. Uh, Kevin mentioned a change project. As you start quarter two, something that is essential is that everybody on a search table defines their own, comes up with their own change project. And what that is, is essentially, here's the best way to think about it. You're looking for one piece of bad fruit. So you don't want, you don't want your change project to be too, too, uh, too vague to where it's like, I want to be less anxious. I want to lose weight. I want to cut something really big. The, the, the more specific and measurable, like a SMART goal it can be, the better. So it's like every Tuesday on my way into work, I find myself getting so anxious. That's a great change project. 
Every, when I, it's when I get home from work and my kids run up to me and I know I should be so thankful to see them and they run up, Daddy, and I just like, I, I just like freak out or I just like, my flinch is to yell at them, whatever it is, like that thing, like at that time when that happens. So, so the more specific you can get. And the other thing is make sure it's not, make sure it's not outside circumstances, specifically other people. So like your change project can't be that my wife is nagging. Or my kids are, it's not that my kids are being annoying when I get home from work. It's my reaction. I see this sinful reaction when I get home from work, my kids run up to me, this is what I'm doing. And I want to explore that and I want to see that change. And the goal, just so you can see where this is going, the goal is that over this quarter, you can, as you go through Chester's book, as you go through this together in your community of your uh, search table, what, what's happening is you can actually see and apply this stuff to those things, you're cha- to that change project. And it can be a little thing, and you're like, oh, okay, I see how this could work. And then we can go in the future, go from there, and do it with other things. So uh, we're trying to do it. It's like a lab for quarter two. So it's very important that you do that. Come to your next search table with an idea for a change project and share that with your search table. All right, you are dismissed. Thank you.